Welcome to the Evolve Move Play podcast, where we bring you the most interesting and enlightening conversations around movement practice and how you can become the most heroic version of yourself through pursuing movement that's relevant to your nature. This is a podcast that's going to feature some of the top movers in the world, some of the most amazing movement thinkers, and people from fields that are related to movement as far afield as evolutionary theory, strength and conditioning, and everything in between. So if you're interested in movement, Please stick around, and if you like our work and want to support it, please consider supporting us on Patreon because this podcast is completely listener-supported. We don't want to take any advertising. We don't want to interrupt your experience of watching the show. So what really helps us get the best thinkers on, have the time to put these together, have the best quality for you guys as far as audio and video is your support. So please consider supporting us and enjoy the rest of the show. Our guest on the podcast this week is Sosha Prashetta. Sosha is a movement teacher from Sydney, Australia. She is a former Muay Thai champion. Uh, she's also practiced Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and Wushu and dived deep into the Ida Portal movement culture and more recently been working extensively with Fighting Monkey. She's also trained with my good friend Simon Thacker from uh, Ancestral Movement. So she's got a, quite a lot of really interesting um influences and I wanted to reach out to her specifically because she's really talking a lot about how movement practice helps us become better at the process of being a human being, which of course, as you know, has been a major theme on the show. So some of the stuff she's been posting has been really beautiful in describing that. So I reached out to her because I wanted to have a conversation. Um, this conversation turned out really beautiful, but we had quite a lot of technical difficulties. And so a lot of the preamble about her background um, got kind of messed up. So this conversation picks up as we get into the idea of improvise or um, isolate, integrate, and improvise. And it goes from there. And I think it's a very interesting conversation. So without further ado, social prosciutto. Okay. So we have had lots of technical difficulties, but we're going to keep giving this a try. Uh, so one thing that you mentioned that I'm very interested in is uh, you mentioned that you had kind of felt stuck in the mindset with the model of isolate, integrate, and improvise. So I wanted to kind of hear you break down uh, what you feel like you got out of that and then how it limited you and what are the frames that you're using that are, are different from that going into your training now? Mm -hmm. um, so what I got out of it is it's a very effective and efficient way to pick up skills and transmit information. Um, it, in its pure form as well because uh, it's kind of like really chopped up and then put together uh, so let's say something simple like teaching someone a chin up you just go with the protocol like abc and then you put it together and it it it's almost a hundred percent effective um and that goes on to whether you're putting together acrobatics or um, I, I, anything skill-based. Um, however, I felt that that kind of keeps the student um, very much dependent on instruction from the instructor. And uh, they don't really develop their own thinking and their observation becomes more passive because they're kind of like, that was my experience anyway. I was kind of just waiting for the next thing. Like, okay, so 
what do I do? And then put it together. Or if I got a bit better, I could put it together myself. But it was still very much dependent on instruction from uh, the teacher. And um, I realized that that's not always necessary. And not just that, but it kind of removes... um, critical thinking and individuality from the student. And um, and they don't really, like when, when I was only working with that model, I felt I couldn't really express. And I never actually reached uh, improvisation per se. So I was always kind of waiting for that to happen. And I, I feel that improvisation kind of happens on its own. It's not after. A, B, and then C. So like walking up to a tree and you just start to feel it and climb it and hang and swing from it. That just happens in its whole. It's not you start like uh, put your left foot here and your right hand there and then you you repeat that three times and now we integrate and at the next step. It just kind of happens organically. Same when, um, when you're sparring or when you're dancing or when you're playing with a friend or playing with an animal. Uh, that improvisation is just available to all of us all the time. Um, But when I was using a lot of isolation, integration, and improvisation, uh, I was only integrating, really. So once I got the different atoms, maybe it's like an open-ended integration or a really limited, closed improvisation, but not really expressing. Sorry? What Edo calls closed-chain flows. Yes, kind of, that's where I felt I could go. And um, and it's not to take away any of the value or quality of the stuff I learned before, but I also felt that um, I was, me and my friends were all moving in the same way and expressing in the same way. And uh it just didn't resonate with me. I kind of wanted to, like like when I was fighting, each fighter would have their own style, even though you're all learning the same techniques, attacks, defenses, drills. But once you enter the ring, you don't have this rehearsed script. It's not, it's completely open. You don't know what's going to happen. And um, that is just bringing your authentic self into that space and and expressing through the body um, and listening, reacting, creating, and it's just it's just a natural flow. Do you have a kind of schema for skill acquisition that you use now, or uh, do you have a different lens that you've brought to it, kind of post that approach? Yeah, it's not to say that I completely scrapped or never use the like isolation integration um but i use a lot more play and um partner and group work so um, not just in the warm-ups but even in skill development uh so pairing the students giving them a certain goal or game and then through those games they find their own solutions and expressions and uh, it's very much fighting monkey style and then changing partners gives them a different kind of stimulus different kind of challenge 
and um, and from there maybe trickle on some tips, not necessarily just from me, but watching how uh, the different students are working, getting them to help and inspire each other as well. So it's much more community-based and there's always new material coming out because it's not just from a single source. Yeah. That's interesting. I mean, uh, I, what we do with Evolving Play is very similar. And I think that, uh, you know, I've talked with Yosef about this, about the idea that essentially it's very congruent with what's all called ecological dynamics, um, learning methods. And I think Simon's stuff is also very similar. So we're all, we're all playing with this. And the interesting thing to me is, you know, I had a conversation with Simon about this recently, but Capoeira, which is where a lot of this kind of skill work that came into movement culture came from, is an open-ended game that's played in right from the start. And that's where a lot of the lessons seem to be. Um, and so what we've kind of come to is this idea of uh, exploration first. It's like you, you set up a, a set of tasks and then you explore within it. And then as you, as you play the, with the tasks, you, you, um, you then recognize solutions. You start looking for solutions that work within the task that you're doing. And then you can repeat and isolate and start saying, how can I be more refined in this? How can I solve this more effectively? But that, that is, is always sort of built from the bottom up of exploration. So the isolation phase is like, uh, you know, it's like three steps down the line for us. And then it, it always rever uh, reverts back to the exploratory or the improvisational. Which was really yeah, cool. I, I do look at uh, the isolation or, or technique refinement as almost like a supplement. So it's not the, the main meal or the nutrition, but it's just sprinkling on to, to refine and add quality and depth and, and all the rest. Yeah, I, I love that analogy. That's exactly how I think about it. Isolated elements are, are uh, isolated elements are by inherently less globally nour nourishing, right? Mm. Climbing a tree is not an isolation of a chin up or an isolation of a muscle up or an isolation of of squatting, lunging, whatever pattern you you might be interested in. Um, but it's gonna it's going to inherently demand adaption across this really broad set of capacities um and so it's like a it's like a whole food nutrition capoeira mm -hmm. is whole food nutrition and going and practicing your muscle up that's like saying okay this is this piece that i'm not getting enough of or i'm not adapting enough in the tree climbing practice so i need to up the amount of that nutrient that i'm getting and even though I'm getting less total out of it, I'm going more deeply and getting a more specific adaption. Yes, yes. So that's the the way that we tend to think about that. And I'm, I'm curious how you, it seems like you've essentially evolved a very similar approach. And I'm just curious to hear you articulate or talk about how you're using that with your students. So when I teach, I combine a lot of different practices. Also, I work with very uh, pretty small groups and individuals or mainly more small groups. I think that that's that flows quite well for me. Um, so I'll just give different scenarios, including learning skills, especially if they have an interest. For example, something like uh, a handstand, I don't feel is that useful. But if there's a strong desire in the student, then why not um, let them explore that and enjoy that? And um, through pursuing 
whatever skills or games uh, weakness is exposed or deficiency or like sticky points, which the student will be aware of already themselves. Or sometimes uh, I kind of step in and go, have you thought about this or looked at that? And then from there, we, we trickle in, um, maybe take a step back and drill specifically to iron out those, um, those missing links or fill them in with, with technique, but it'll still be very much game-based. Um, another big thing for me is after like several years of getting very obsessed with movement practice and with the body, I kind of, uh, became a little bit uninterested. Like I felt, okay, I'm training really hard. I'm investing a lot of time and uh, and I'm also asking the same from the students, the ones that, that are willing. Um, and to what end? So we're getting more proficient with different movement patterns, more, more freedom, more skills. Um, but I just kind of felt like, what's the point? I don't really uh, like it felt a bit dead end. Or, or it becomes like an addiction more than like you're escaping life into the movement practice. Uh, same like you can do with anything else, with music, with drugs, with uh, anything that you occupy and identify with fully. So I use the movement practice as a way for uh, myself and also the students that are receptive to it uh, as a self-observation practice to see uh, not not specifically just where physical deficiencies are, but uh, emotional blocks and mental blocks and um, the inner dialogue that happens while you're training. And usually this comes uh, more from the challenging movements. Uh, and that's always individually perceived. So uh, sometimes there may be boredom, like if you're doing a long standing practice, so you're actually not moving and you're observing that inner dialogue and how you deal with that or other times it's um through martial arts especially they're there for someone that's not used to it or had uh trauma in the past it can be um triggering to to get hit or thrown and it's all done progressively and gently and it's uh, for me, it's about using movement to repattern the the stories, or actually rather drop the stories that we tell ourselves um, where we're weak or suffering, or uh, like like just getting more internal freedom, and ideally getting to do the same in daily life. Because if if something like we're habitual creatures. And um, if you're having a certain thought process while you're feeling challenged in movement class, it's likely it would come up outside in a relationship or in a workspace. So it's using movement as a platform for internal repatterning. Um, not every student I have gets this and that's okay if they come just for physical practice, they will still gain from that. But that's where it's, become interesting for me and a worthwhile practice so then it's not so important exactly which movements or what model uh, I'm using to teach even though I'm moving 
further away from the like isolation integration uh, model. Um, yeah, I, I hope this makes sense. <laughs> no, absolutely. I think it's kind of actually at the core of the theme of, of what's been the main conversation we've been having on this podcast. And it's why I really specifically wanted to talk to you. Um, there's a, there's this idea that actually if we kind of pull back and frame somebody, if you went and asked a bunch of Muay Thai practitioners, like why do you practice Muay Thai? If you went and asked a bunch of Brazilian Jiu Jitsu practitioners, why do you practice? You asked a bunch of snowboarders, why do you practice? Um, you won't usually hear answers like to kick the other guy in the head really hard. No. Right. Or, you know, I, I just, just love choking people with my sleeves. You know, um, a lot of times what you'll hear is something like, Oh, it makes me more courageous. You know, it's a place where I can go and study my emotions. It's a place where I can release and feel like I have control of things. It's a place where I seek freedom. Um, mm -hmm it's fun, it's playful. Like all of these things that they were describing, they're not the direct, um, they're not the direct thing that is being done, right? It's like, we do this, we do X to get Y, not to get X, mm -hmm. whatever the movement practice is. And so then the question that I've been really trying to ask is, uh, well, what is it that you're really aimed at? And how would you look at your practices not as something that you serve, but as something that serves you. So I think that what you were describing in your relationship with movement practice, when you were embedded with, with Ido was like feeling like you had to serve the idea of being a mover. Yes. Yeah, that, that's correct. Rather than saying, what is it that the movement is giving me that is important to me? And how do I... And how do I get the most out of that? And is it even the best place to get what I'm looking for? Mm -hmm. And it seems like this is the question that you're, you're, you're asking with yourself and with your students. Um, and, and so I'm just curious to, to, to hear other people who are asking this question and, and, and what you're experiencing, what you're, you're coming up with, you know, what is the internal change that you're actually looking for with people? And, and what are the practices that you're finding help for different challenges and, and different people even? Well, it's so individual and specific. Um, so I, I see movement practice as a platform where the, the student, the individual, or even myself as a teacher and a student at the same time uh, approach and, and just have this... Um, observing mode all the time um, and by switching the modalities of movement practice that kind of activates this um, inner dialogue and there's other things as well there's also celebration and enjoyment it's not just all work um, there's also addressing the, the body itself to be like freer, free of injuries, uh, have more options. Um, but the, the dialogue that happens, it's inside the individual. And as we train together, I feel that the empathy in the group and the community increases. So um, the students can start to read each other more and 
nurture and push them to to like their partner to deal with their mm, weaknesses uh, usually more internal weaknesses um and the modalities change because different things will bring out different uh uh challenge and dialogue so what may be pleasant to one person would be uh, painful to another or perceived as painful to another um does that sort of answer your question or do you want more specific about drills um, that we're using yeah i mean i think it's very interesting to dig deeper into these things for some reason i i want to tell you the story because i think it's an interesting um for me it's interesting as a as a like, what is it that we're trying to get and how do we get at it? So uh, my, my wife bought me a Kindle for my birthday, um, which is, you know, which has been great because I've been able to store all these books on it. And now I don't have to have as many bookshelves, it reduces mm-hmm. all this stuff in my life. So I was reading it Saturday morning and then um, I got up Sunday morning and went looking for it where it normally be and it wasn't there. So I spent all day cleaning my house and moving books around and couldn't find it. And so by the end of the day, uh, you know, at the end of the day, I was like, uh, you know, I just figured through the cleaning process that I'd find it. But at the end of the day, I was uh, like just dedicatedly looking for this piece of equipment for like two hours. By Mm -hmm. the end of the two hours, I was like feeling paranoid, like someone had come into my house and like taken it. Like my wife was, was, was trying to drive me crazy and hiding it from somewhere. Like I went out and like was punching my punching bag and releasing the anger. and, and I went and sat on the couch and I had this interesting moment where I was like, I, I, I knew that I had to accept that the thing was probably gone. I'd spent all day basically looking for it. I had to accept that it was probably gone. And, and right away, I wanted to sort of medicate myself with using my screen. I want, I have a agreement with myself not to use my screens on Sundays. It's my Sabbath. Mm-hmm. But, but I was like, ah, oh, I've been stressed out all day. I'm just going to sit down and watch some comedy or some dance, whatever I like, right? And, and I picked up my computer. I had it in my lap. Um, and then I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't turn it on. I sat it beside myself and I said, okay, I'm going to observe this emotion and observe how it plays out. And took me a while but suddenly i was like okay i'm seeing through this i'm okay okay what is the attachment how do i let go of the attachment um and then i was able to have a conversation with my wife say like here's all this weird emotional stuff that was happening with me right um here's how it has to do with all my adhd background and all that stuff but i don't think that i would have been able to do that even like a year ago or two years ago and i think that part of what has given me the emotional skills to negotiate a situation like that has been my movement practices Mm-hmm. Um, but then the question would be like, well, that's what you really want is you want like clarity and equanimity to respond to stress. Like you, you inoculate yourself with stress when you go out and train and you want to not overreact to things. You want to, to be able to react adaptively to things. Um, and, and a movement practice is a place to do that. But then the question is, is, um, well, what is it about the movement practice that helps me? And is it the best place to get it? And where else could, like, how would I work with an individual athlete like myself? Like, okay, uh, I'm a, I don't have a lot of emotions, so I don't often have to interact with my emotions. 
But when I do, if I have negative emotions, they tend towards anger. Right? Mm. So knowing that maybe there's a specific set of practices that have the highest potential to help me negotiate those situations more with more sophistication. So this is like the level of, of thinking about these things that I'm really interested in. I, and I suspect that this is what you're doing with your clients. You're looking at a client, maybe intuitively, and saying, who is this person in front of me? I have this bag of tools that I've seen over and over again, help someone kind of systematically harvest some kind of wisdom, some kind of virtue. What is it that I'm doing with this one person? Yeah, that's exactly right. I I feel it's when I'm looking or when we're looking at the person that's come to practice and to learn, it's understanding what language they speak and understand because otherwise uh, I can put the tool there, but if they don't recognize or connect with it, then it's, it's not the right tool, it's wasted. Um, and for some people, and this is where changing the, the modalities of training comes in helpful. For some people, they need more uh, softer, nurturing, stilling uh, drills, uh, like like um, things that you'd be doing with Simon in the mornings at the Ancestral Movement Bush Retreat. Um, while others may be... <sighs> like trust is a huge part. So speaking the language and developing trust, because then you're going to bring them into the areas that, uh, that they need, but are probably not so happy to, to start entering in the first place until they develop more familiarity with it. Uh, for others, like uh, only this year, I started to bring back more striking and martial drills into uh, my teaching and it's been quite incredible um, because before I was teaching people that were interested in Muay Thai when I was a coach or that maybe even wanted to fight, whilst now I'm teaching people who their average age would be 40 plus and they're just looking for some well-being uh, physically and internally. And when I put these drills where they would get a little bit pummeled or a little bit hit um, and have this discomfort and a little bit of shock, um, it was very triggering for quite a few of them and turning that into an empowering kind of uh, relationship with the same action over a period of time. So same like you're saying, asking uh, fighters about why they, they're doing their sport, uh, their martial art. It, it's, um, it's not just to, to, it's not about hurting people or getting that high or that kick. Um, and then we actually discuss a lot in class. So we will actually, between drills, sit in a circle or stand and share each person's, uh, whoever wants to share what's going on inside of them and how they found their solutions um, to overcome challenges. Uh, at the same time, aside from physiological benefits that come from movement practice, uh, which, which help for longevity, for better quality of life. I don't think it has to be movement practice that does this. I think um, whatever area a person is drawn to, they can explore the same journey through that. Like it could be painting, it could be uh, playing an instrument, um, something that has this long-term problem solving, something that they look forward to going 
and doing on a regular basis so that they evolve and um, and build those neural pathways. Um, the only thing is often people just get into that, into their craft, but don't always see how to transfer that outside into daily life. Like a lot of my friends who are fighters in the gym and in the ring or in the cage, they, they are formidable, but then they may um, go for a job interview and they're super scared, right? So they haven't kind of applied that into another area of life, for example. So um, what I, I love doing most is kind of providing this platform where we practice and then uh, by discussing it together, it just makes it more normal and accelerates the speed of uh, internal progress. So do you teach mostly group classes? Yes. Okay, so you're mostly doing group classes. How long are your classes? <laughs> um, so I don't really like to work with a clock, but I do teach people with jobs in an urban <laughs> setting. So they're, they're roughly two hours, uh, yeah. sometimes a bit less. If it's on a weekend, um, students can leave when they need to within a like reasonable amount of time. Like we may go for three hours and they just, I think uh, I've had a couple of inquiries come in where they think it's just like a fitness or movement class and they're just shocked. Like we just don't stop. And, and they're like, but what time? And, and for me, it's like, well, when the work is done, it's done. Um, and sometimes you don't work that much. Sometimes you really get into a subject or like jump. Mm, like it just evolves into a story and we, we spend the time there. Yeah, I, I asked because you're, you know, you're trying to cover, you know, if you're playing with all these different modalities and also the, the quiet time where you're digesting it. That's very hard to fit into the time frames that a lot of people are, are putting on these things. And um, do, do your students mostly come to multiple classes per week? Yeah, yeah. Between two and four. Um, I only teach for a week. Some of them may do privates, but um, some may come once a week or less, but that's very rare. And I do discourage it. Uh, more from their own progress and also the the feeling with the rest of the group like they're, they're, I'd like it to the relations to deepen and the work to get stronger um, but yeah most come between two and four times a week okay and do you have um, do you have uh, do you have practices do they practice outside of the classes or is that kind of the majority of their practice right there uh, that's up to them. Like, I I don't demand. Uh, I think it just depends on what the student wants out of it and what they need and how receptive they are. So uh, some of them are really hardworking and they'll approach for advice and that, that's, that makes me very happy. Um, and I just send them off with their own practice. I also, during class, will share... Uh, like suggests, you know, if you do this every morning, that's really good or um, specific person with specific weakness, like, okay, this won't really be enough in class, but whether they do it or not, that's their adults. They, they will choose um, and often necessity will push uh, the need to, to practice more. 
but I kind of lay things on the table and then whatever people want to eat, they eat. Um, and, and, uh, that's also newer for me because I used to be a very hard, uh, teacher, like very demanding. Um, I just related it to how I spoke to myself when I was training and I didn't really have empathy for people that were not going to give 200% and work really hard and get really into it. But over time, I just kind of saw like that was more about my own ego and I'm trying to force people to, to, uh, to like impose my method on someone else. Um, and actually it's been more, well-received then people are uh it's kind of like being preached to it has the opposite effect but um if you kind of put it there and they see there's benefits then they'll they'll they're likely to do more with it Mm -hmm. absolutely so um you told me recently uh in another conversation that you're you don't go in with a plan anymore that you don't program classes the classes are are improvised you can tell me a little bit about how you improvise and you know you said you you end the class when you feel like the work is done how do you start to recognize the work that needs to be done in a class and what gives you the feeling that the work has been completed um so this not programming thing is also quite recent for me like less than a year um between six months and a year and it was extremely challenging at first because i felt like I'm arriving to class and I don't know what I'm going to do. Um, But I noticed that none of the students noticed and I would even ask them after. So because most of my classes are outdoors, that already has one element that dictates um, the general feeling that most people will have. So if it's raining, it's one way. If it's hot, it's another so it, uh, working with seasons and environment already alters things. Uh, whereas before, let's say I was working in a gym, the program will always work. But um, or, or not just uh, weather changes, but maybe there's like a massive kid's birthday party next to us. So then I'm not going to blast uh, really loud music and do coordinations. We may change. So environment is one factor. And then um, again, working with the small groups and being quite close with a lot of the students, there's just this, uh, I guess, intuition and empathy for uh, the general feeling Um, and knowing individual injuries and individual goals also kind of steers the direction of the class. Um, But feeling out, like we always start with, joint work and like oiling up the joints and seeing how people's movement patterns are from there and uh or breath work and just getting a feel for what's going on and then from there yeah it, i i i took this idea of um transferring my skills from cooking into uh, movement practice. So I've been doing both for the same amount of time, but my movement practice, whether it was sports, martial arts, general movement, were always pretty structured uh, with a teacher, whereas cooking, I self-taught and I worked with feeling and I just taste and, and I never really use a recipe or measure anything. And it comes out uh, 
pretty nice, even though I say <laughs> so myself. Um, so I started to apply those principles into the movement practice. So I kind of reversed it rather than applying what I learned in movement to other areas of life. I was like, okay, well, I have some stagnation points in the movement practice. So I need to go outside and bring that in. Um, and the opposite happened when I started doing twice a day meditations. I used the discipline I had from the movement practice to the sitting practice, which was very challenging at first. So if I look at it like cooking, um, I'm kind of feeling and tasting and checking. And we also have some verbal communication. The body should displays a lot of what's going on um, in the joints and also in the mind. So from there, I kind of uh, work. And I'll also sometimes ask them, like, what do you guys feel like working on? And uh, it's very rare that everyone wants something different. There's this kind of collective um, energy that's going on in the class. Interesting. Sounds very fun. I'd love to come and attend a few classes. <laughs> so um, what did I want to follow up on there? Uh, well, I guess one of the things I was, I was reading through some of your blog posts and one of the things you talk a lot about is balance, right? And you've mentioned it a few times in this conversation, right? When someone has uh, an excess of one thing or, or lacks something of, of something else. And I always find that a difficult, uh, I'm always curious what's meant by balance because the way that we perceive that is dependent on our goals, right? Like, uh, a, an upper body, a gymnast, a ring specialist in, in gymnastics has a very different perception of the like optimal balance of upper body to lower body mass than a cyclist, right? In order to know what the like I mean physical balance, like proportion, and yes. I'm just using ability. an analogy for balance in general, right? And and uh, a soccer player has a different idea of the the necessity of mobility versus endurance versus strength than uh, a Muay Thai fighter, right? A Thai fighter needs substantially more um, kicking flexibility. You need to yes. keep, get their legs real high in the air. Uh, and so I'm, I'm curious, how do you define, how, when, you're, when you're looking at a student and you're saying, okay, there's an imbalance that needs to be fixed here. What is the, the archetype? What is the schema that's, that's, that's saying this is out of balance and this needs to be pulled into balance? Mm, well, there's two main things I look at. One is if they have a certain activity or sport that needs their body to be in condition to perform well, that's one category. So if something is not working or flowing or there's pain, there's that that needs addressing. Um, and the other is aging, which is happening to all of us. So it's not just you look after your sport and you kick really well, but you just wreck your hips. And when you're done, that's kind of it. Like, okay, I was an athlete and now I don't do anything. I'm just in pain. And that happens a lot. So yeah, one would be addressing the needs of the sport and two would be um, pain-free daily life and um, being able to do the tasks uh, freely and looking at that as maintaining it for the rest of your life. For example, getting in and out of the floor uh, in different uh, configurations um, 
basic lifting, jumping, walking. Uh, often there's things that are just hidden to the individual. Like maybe they, they, um, they can play football really well, but their walking gait already has problems. So that's going to create, uh, that's like a hidden injury that's very, very slowly building up. And it will probably reveal itself like a decade later or a few months later or even more than like two decades later. So it's just looking at the basics, standing, uh, sitting, walking, squatting, um, jumping, lifting, hanging. And uh, once those are not looking like, okay, you're really... You can sprint really well, but you can't hang for 10 seconds. Then just spending a little bit, again, that's the, the supplementation to, to the movement practice. It's not getting um, caught up in becoming fully symmetrical or having perfect movement, but just seeing like, okay, that's a bit of a blind spot. Let's just bring some attention there and see if we can make it the whole thing um, more integrated and and balanced and functioning. I'm going to harass you a little bit on this question, just because this is uh, this is something that I, I'm really particularly passionate about is getting people to be very clear about what that is. Because um, to to say that someone needs to to say have the ability to squat deep on the ground or the ability to hang is actually to accept a frame about what is normal and what is um, what, what, how a human being sh can function or should function, right? Um, and we can, we can, uh, we can look like a biomedical model and say, um, you know, we associate a lack of ankle dorsiflexion. Say, like if you're if you're stuck at zero degrees of ankle dorsiflexion, that's associated with certain injuries. And we can say, okay, well, we need to we need to address that because it's going to prevent injury. But that doesn't take you very far, in my opinion, into like creating a balanced body. And there's not that much information that really tells us um, what that balanced body looks like. Like, you know, it, do you need to be able to hang from your hands for 10 seconds, yeah. seconds, a minute to have a, a well, a well functioning and healthy shoulder? Is there a random randomized controlled trial that tells us that? Right. Mm. So I, I mean, I think a lot of people have some intuitive understanding or there's a, there's a, you know, an understanding that's been built up. Yeah. Mostly intuitively or through frames that you've accepted of, of Muay Thai, Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, uh, you know, movement culture, but, 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 but getting that question right seems really critical to me. Like what is it that is the thing that you're aimed at that tells you what it means to be balanced? And, when you when you're working with an athlete, that's relatively simpler, right? Because you're you're saying, okay, you need to function to do this sport and not hurt yourself, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and optimally function better. Yes. Right. Um, but when we're thinking about movement in a sort of broad paradigm, how do you decide what it means to be balanced? Do you get a, the question that I'm trying to to ask you here? I think so. Um, I'll attempt to answer and then. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
So you brought the example of the athlete needing to function for their sport. I don't see it too different um, for the individual in daily life. So, for example, my uh, I don't often work with them, but my favorite group, that's more when I sub for one of my students who teaches them, uh, they are elderly. So most are over 80 years old. Okay. And I... I love working with them. Um, that really brings me into that problem-solving mode. You know, it's not just, oh, that would be cool or, uh, you know, you need to address this, but it's seeing like, okay, so you've had a reconstructed hip, a fused toe, something else, like stuff has already stopped working. And um, and it's just observing how... Uh, the body responds to different stimulus and also the brain responds, like maybe some basic visual learning or hand-eye coordination. Uh, have they lost the ability to put a shoe on? Um, can they get their groceries? Can they go into the floor and come out? Stuff like that uh, starts to go if it's not being addressed. Um, I, I remember seeing as a small girl, I'm, I'm half Chinese, so I spent a lot of time in Hong Kong. I would kind of laugh at the elderly people walking like ducks in the park uh, early morning or like smacking their, their themselves like in different areas. And then, um, you know, as I became more uh, less ignorant, I, I noticed that like, wow, these people are very old and they're moving the same as very young people, just very fluid, very free. They can maintain that. Um, so it's not having these uh, like scientific measurement, like can you hang for 30 seconds? Can you squat like this? But it's, um, for me, it's seeing how they respond. And again, more from a playful scenario um, and see if ability is starting to leave them or deteriorate or the quality of life especially physically like maybe internally they're they've done a lot of work and they're fine but then they just they can't sit comfortably they can't play with the grandkids they can't um uh, they start to need help for everything either from machinery or other people then that's the quality of life uh, has really gone down um, and it's addressing that. So again, it's more observing and seeing uh, what the individual needs for their life to be happy and feel uh, functioning and going from there rather than measuring and ticking boxes that, that need um, ticking. Yeah. I don't know if that answered your question, but... Uh, um, we're getting there. Um, <laughs> like, I, I guess I'm very interested in like, uh, you know, first principles in, in this conversation around movement. And I, I want to see, I want to get the conversation to be on really clear grounds. Cause like you, uh, like you talk, you can say healthy, functional, like, like, uh, happy. It's like there's there's some overarching frame right that it, that is valuable there right um, you're it it's unpleasant it's it's a form of suffering to have a toe that doesn't work well and that you have to alter your entire gait to move around right it's unpleasant to have the inability to straighten your back and walk and not have soreness in your back and we face mm -hmm. these things as we age 
And so we can we could say that we're we're just trying to uh, you know, I feel like uh Yosef and Lena talk about this too. It's like this idea of like, how are you aging? How do we just give you a little bit more? Um and I think that's a that's a it's a it's a really good start. But I I'm I'm really curious about digging into that question. It's like what are you aimed at? Right? What is the practice aimed at? And and I suppose that there's there's always the 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 response, which is that what we can what we can articulate that we can aim at can never contain all of it, right? There's always the element of mystery. Right? So part of what we do has to be just this intuitive, empirical, playful process. Mm-hmm. Um, not empirical, uh, but you know what I mean. Um, but I, I'm always curious to get people to sort of really try to articulate. I'm, I'm trying to take people somewhere. They're, they're somewhere they don't want to be right now. They come to me for a reason. It's pain, it's dysfunction, it's not feeling liking the way that they feel in the body or the way they perceive their body. Um, and you as a coach have some set of tools to help them facilitate a journey towards where they would like to be. But how do you recognize what's actually where they want to go and, and the tool that helps you achieve that? Well, not everyone is going to be a perfect fit. So some people, they may come and, um, I mean, it sounds very foreign, but if they're looking for F45, they're not going to like it and they're not going to stick around, for example. You don't know F45? (laughs) It's a very popular fitness trend now. It's basically circuit training, um, I believe, 45 minutes so that you just get it done and over with. Yeah. Uh, high intensity stuff. Take, take the boxes. Um, I think them sticking around and having visible transformation is so it's quite like a slow ongoing process. It's not in, in the first several lessons. It's really feeling each other out, digesting new content on, on for me to, uh, start understanding what the student's world looks like and for them to start understanding what my language also sounds like. Um, and then seeing progress. And because we also discuss together, they also, I mean, not everything is always verbalized or expressed, but it's just displayed somehow. Um, can you repeat your question? <laughs> <laughs> um. Uh, so I guess the idea is that whatever we're doing, essentially, we're we're taking someone's coming to us because there's some need that they feel or something that 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 isn't fulfilled, and they're hoping to go somewhere else. And with with general clients, a lot of times they they don't know what they actually want, and they yes. don't know where they want to go, but they want something, and they want to be somewhere there that they're not currently. And so, what yes. is the process that allows us to? to um to identify that that what they actually are seeking and then figure out the tool that helps us facilitate them getting there so let's say we use the example of someone that's just come and they're open and they don't have specific goals right like we have different some will arrive and they say hey uh I've seen what you're putting online. I'd love to do this, this, this. And and that may or may not be what they need. Um, But let's say someone's coming 
without uh, expectation or specific goals. Um, I think there's two main elements um, and both are important not to get too obsessed or identified with, otherwise that kind of creates another kind of, um, could be addiction or escapism, but one would be uh, enjoyment. So it's not all just hard work, uh, but just having this, like celebrating, moving the body, being with people, um, feeling empowered by working hard and making progress in different areas. And then the other is uh, very quickly visible as well, the the area of, um, like you say, perceived suffering. And that is probably um, where they need but may not know that they need to go um i don't think that's the example you wanted but Mm. that's that no it's not (laughs) but that's kind of um yeah it, it it just why is there uh anger or fear coming out from this specific thing this needs attention um that that's kind of it for me uh, regarding seeing like what they they actually need um, because that's an area that we kind of try and avoid um, and there's a lot of hidden stuff in there so it sounds like you're if I can repeat back to you, your metric for what people need is often what they don't want or what they're afraid of but but you have two because you said you said earlier you want them to to have a sense of enjoyment. Yes. So you you feel like the places that they're afraid to go or they're the dark spaces you want to shine light on them. Is that what it sounds like? Is that correct? That is correct. Um, that being said, it's not something I uh, I really work on with every student. So. That may be too much. Like this is kind of closer to my core values and students that are craving going a bit deeper. Yeah. Uh, just express openness and and desire for this, and that's wonderful. And then there's other students that kind of um, it's still very much on a biomechanical or skills or or like more superficial, not superficial, but bodily well-being level. And from there, um, it's similar, just less, less intense. So still working with uh, things that, that bring enjoyment and, um, and ironing out weakness. What would you, what's your metric? What's my metric? Um, I guess, well, I had a really interesting conversation with Simon about this, but the way that I that I've the way that I've conceptualized it is that fundamentally we're we're aimed at sort of the construction of our most heroic self. Mm-hmm. It's like the version of us that that we would most admire if we could construct it in the future. Like who who would you want to be, and and that 
we when we set out on a quest to become that we we gain some kind of meaning right it's meaningful to us and this is something that i think uh that taps right into it there's a um, a big, a big influence of mine and in thinking about all this stuff is is Jordan Peterson and more recently John Verbeke. But Peterson has a couple interesting ideas. One is, and a lot of people in philosophy are are, are talking about this idea of meaning, right? That we well being or, or happiness there they don't seem to be uh, sustainable things to aim at. But when we aim at like long term satisfaction or like living a meaningful life, that seems to sustain us over the long run. And then the question is, well, what is that, and how do we get at that? Um, but that idea that I was that I was pushing you on of, of like the they start with an insufficiency and they want to go to a place where they're no longer insufficient in that place. That's straight out of like Peterson's Maps of Meaning book. He says. Essentially, we are always living in an unbearable present, and we're always aimed at an ideal future, right? And so yeah. we're always acting to go somewhere. Um, and I would say that even the students who don't know what they're there for, they're there for a reason. That it's just implicit. They just haven't articulated or understood yet what's driving them. So then, um, so then we're we're trying to facilitate this this process, and uh, and there's this. Uh, there's you, you touched on. I can't articulate how you said it, but there's this basic idea that you can you can start to sort of intuit when you're in the right place because it feels really meaningful. Mm -hmm. I'm in a conversation, I feel that, or when I'm when I'm doing work, I feel that this sense that um, this is where the rich stuff is, and it is this sense of it's intriguing and it's investigative and it like it needs to be explored, but also um, it's challenging. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, another idea that's really big in what we do is this idea of like uh, uh, that comes out of flow state research. It's like we learn optimally and we experience the world as optimal. <laughs> Sorry, my daughter's there in the background. Um, when we are kind of balanced right at the edge of our competency, when we're pushed up, up against something that is right past our competency. Um, or when we are very highly challenged and we have high competency and we, those things are combined. Um, so that's, there's this instinct for meaning that tells us you're growing, you're growing somewhere. And that's, that's, I guess, fundamentally what I'm seeking. Does that make sense? Yeah. 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 So when Simon said, um, envisioning your future self, this yeah. almost like a higher self that you would like to embody um, that very much resonates with me. Um, and I think it's also bringing you closer to your core values. So that's another thing that uh, not just movement practice, but a consistent practice uh, can amplify or expose. So often uh, if the students kind of enjoying the practice, but not sure why, and there's some progress, um, ideally over time, that kind of brings them more uh, connection with what their core values are, which would align with this future self that you guys spoke about. Um, yeah. Connection is another key topic that I think about a lot right now. Like um, when people talk about the, the impact of the work that we do. A lot of times it's phrased around these ideas of connection, of feeling connected to nature, feeling connected to play, feeling connected to the body in a new way, 
feeling connected to other people. And that one comes up as really important to people. And I think that there's a, there's an epidemic of disconnection. People feel very disconnected. And so this is a, a fundamental need that people are expressing when, when they imagine that the ideal future self is someone who knows, knows themselves better, right? It's someone who, who has a connection to, to love, to, to other people, to, to nature, perhaps whatever it is. And that, and I, I agree with you that it's, that what we really want, what we, who we really are in some sense um, is revealed through, it, it's interesting, it's revealed through pushing ourselves, but it's also revealed through play. And those things are, are both the same and different, right? Because when, as adults, we think of play as frivolous, but it's not really. Play is more a place where you you're exploring or you're pushing your boundaries where you're adding in variations to give yourself information so that you can grow mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and, and initially it can be uh more on the frustrating side but as you become more well acquainted with it that relationship and the options start to change um, I think the the connection thing you said is it's huge, and uh, again going back to like even though I'm working or we're working with movement and it's amazing for us, it doesn't have to be through a movement practice. It's again this uh, long term commitment into developing in a certain area or or craft. Um, but that's one of the few areas in. Uh, in modern urban life where we by choice go and seek out uh, to work hard at something and to uh, increase these connections because right from when we're born for most of our life we're kind of imposed or told what we need to do whether it's going to school or studying a certain way and and just taking a lot of boxes like the average person as they enter adulthood and they graduate they have career goals and financial goals and then the family and the pets and and it's just like almost like a checklist but um and there may that may be what uh the individual needs or desires or it may not and they just feel that they have to fit into these boxes but when you come to a uh movement practice with your community or your your jam sessions with your band or, or whatever it is you're doing um that is your time and your choice and your it's not um it shouldn't be so much just based on duty um yeah. and i think that's where the richness also comes uh this is also why i uh, like often middle-aged women I'll bumped into into the street will say like, oh, your body's looking really fit and healthy. Uh, how can I get it that way? Um, what do you do? And I always answer like, find something that you actually enjoy and then you can stick with it. It's not about, you know, trying to mold this, but if you enjoy hiking or rock climbing or salsa dancing, like if you look forward to going five times a week with your friends, then that that will just bring not just a physical transformation, but a whole other 
um, a deeper long-term consistent practice that that will bring so many benefits yeah i say exactly the same thing people ask me how to get started on a movement practice i always say find the thing that you're passionate about and so often i'll hear people say something like oh i'd love to do parkour martial arts whatever but i need to be fit first and Mm. um and what i hear is i need to do i have absorbed this this frame that the culture has around exercise that Um, that I'm unable to operate on or else I would already be fit. And therefore I'm not going to try to do any of the things that would be fun and giving me the motivation to actually be fit. You know? Yeah. Um, Yeah. I always tell them like you, if you, if you do parkour and you find out that you love it, you'll do the work to get fit. But if you wait to do parkour and you go to the gym and you hate it, you're probably not going to stick with it. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and that's unfortunately the vast majority of the people out there are in that going to the gym, hating it and not sticking with it phase because they haven't recognized the, the primacy of passion. Um, you, um, you touched on another thing that's really important to me, which is the idea of intrinsic versus extrinsic rewards, right? Our culture teaches us to be very oriented towards extrinsic reward, towards um, you know, did you get the gold star? Did you get the grade? Did you get the raise? Did you get the Instagram likes? There's so many ways to kind of try to feed ourselves externally that we don't mm. learn to pay deep attention to what the internally relevant. And this is actually true even in our movement practices. One of the really interesting things that's coming out of the research on motor learning theory is that it's actually very easy for a coach to interfere with a, um, a student's long-term progress in movement by giving them too much extrinsic feedback. Mm-hmm. So learning. So you, if you, let's say you're, you have someone doing a backflip, right. And they, they can kind of do a backflip, but they don't do, don't do it very well. So you could give them a cue on every rep, give them one, two, three, four, five cues on every rep, right. Or you give them a cue every second rep or fifth rep or 10th rep or 15th rep. And then mm-hmm. what, what is actually the optimal? And what they found is that less frequent is often more optimal, right? Because every time that you're giving the, the, the athlete verbal information or even having them watch a video, you're actually um, tending to divert their attention from the intrinsic feedback of how the movement felt. Kind of like uh, paralysis by analysis. Yeah, sure. That's, that's part of it for sure. It contributes to that. But the main thing is that eventually to control the movement and get them the most out of it, they have to have a feel for the movement. Yeah. Something that um, I was talking to one of my jujitsu coaches about that when the, the Brazilians came here and they first started teaching Brazilian jiu-jitsu to Americans, they were like, they don't have any feel. They ha- don't have any rhythm. And I think mm. because there's a lot more play. There's a lot more openness and a lot more, uh, there's less really, you know, refined kind of pedagogical mo- methods using, you know, classic isolation. Yes. And so the athlete has to learn to develop that intrinsic feel. Uh, Yosef has a great kind of talk about this where he talks about, you know, we give coordinations to one group and coordinations to another group. And we will give one group lots of cues and the other group no cues. 
So one group learns easily, the other group learns more difficultly. But the next time we teach them, the group that had the hard path is the better movers. Um, and and it strikes me, it just strikes me in this conversation that we're, that this is like the same, in many ways, it's a very similar problem at a different scale, right? In movement, if we give people too much external stuff, we hide the internal. In life, we're overwhelming people with so much external information that we're hiding their ability to develop their internal sensitivity. Yeah, yeah. And there's almost like an aversion to it once it reaches a certain point. And that's where you see a lot of people putting a lot of effort into their jobs or even they may even play a sport after work and then they really want to veg out on Netflix or or social media. There's uh, it's It's almost like I don't know where to start to deal with myself and uh, not have a stimulus. So I will just, that's going to take over and I just plug into that. So I don't need to uh, see where to start or, or start to, like I've not really heard my own voice in many, many years. There's some research, um, I, if I remember correctly, basically they put people in a, in a, in a room with nothing to do, but they have the option to shock themselves. And then they like measure how many times they will shock themselves over an hour or how, how long they will go without shocking themselves. Mm. And um, it's a mild shock. It's not like really painful, but <laughs> the, the, the finding was basically people will not tolerate sitting quietly in a room without any stimulation for very long at all. Like we would rather give ourselves a mildly unpleasant stimulus than have to be alone in our own minds. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and and this is kind of go, goes back to this idea we've been talking about. It's like reconnecting to the self. And, um, and you, you've mentioned something that I talk about quite frequently, which is the idea that a lot of the benefits that we are attributing to movement practice are not unique to movement practice. Right. If we think about connecting to a flow state, right, like being on the edge of your zone of challenge um, and that optimal peak experience, it's like, well, freestyle rapping will give you that, right? Mm-hmm. Cooking can give you that. Speaking can give you that. Writing can give you that. But it seems to me that there are, you, you wrote an essay on your blog called Why We All Need a Movement Practice. I don't know. Maybe you don't feel that way anymore, but I, I do feel like there's something unique about movement because it involves all of our capacities, right? Our whole body and our brain and our emotions have to be integrated in engaging this fundamental process. And there's a, it's not, it's not complete. It doesn't work on its own because like you said, you can become identified with it. You can become stuck in it and not carrying those 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 attributes gained somewhere else um but that embodied feel for what it is like to overcome fear to overcome reactivity seems like it's the most complete thing that you could carry into all those other challenges that's that's what it seems like to me i don't know if you have the same perception i'm curious 
I'm still toying with the idea of how important um, and significant the body and movement practice really is. Uh, that's still processing for me. So I'm, I'm just constantly questioning and deconstructing and reconstructing my ideas around it. Um, but one thing about movement practice is um, that we do have a body and if we want to have, a, like we, we kind of have a responsibility to look after it. Um, or you just cannot have a, a decent quality of life on any level. So maybe it's minimal and you may not even need a movement practice. Like if you're gardening and you're cleaning your house in, in ways, you know, not necessarily with vacuum cleaner, but you're getting again, twisting, crouching, doing all this stuff. Um, you probably would still benefit with some kind of formal practice, whether it's a bit of qigong or tai chi or, or something to connect you with what's going on in your uh, skeletal system, with your organs, with your muscles. Um, but it's yeah, so it's a kind of a responsibility to look after this vessel that we reside in. Um, but outside of that. I don't think it's, I felt like I was giving more meaning to what I do than is actually there on some level. Um, I don't think we need that much movement practice unless it's something that interests us. Yeah, I mean, well, there's a difference between sort of optimal and necessary, right? And, uh, what is the amount of movement that is optimal? What is the amount that is necessary? What is the amount that is that is uh, excessive? And I think that probably depends on the rest of your life and your age and you know different factors. Um, but it just seems to me that there's certain a certain lens on trying to solve perennial problems in human existence that there's a unique value to movement. And there's something that you said that I wanted to, to touch on there, which is you said that our body is a vessel that we move through the world in. Um, do you think the body is only a vessel? I do. Um, I, I, I mean, I feel it's alive and changeable, but uh, let's say if I get in an accident tomorrow and I lose my arm, the vessel has changed, but if I am not uh, obsessively identified with it, my internal state, uh, superficially like emotions, um, identification, that will be affected, but what the core of what I am is the same as it's been since I was very small, um, in the same way that, okay, I don't have an accident and the body is, naturally aging um it has its own course and it's kind of like a, a shelter for whatever's inside to to um interact with the world yeah i mean i, I tend to think that i guess i'm uh, i'm more in this idea of the embodiment of the self where 
the the idea of the mind as separate from the body is somewhat illusion, somewhat of an illusion, right? We are the arm is less is less core to who you are than the brain is, um, mm-hmm. but it's not a difference of kind; it's a difference of degree, right? And I could injure a part of your brain, and you could lose a capacity in your brain that wouldn't actually necessarily take away your core self either, or I could injure you in a way. Uh, that would drastically change your core self. And to lose something like the capacity of your your arm is an extraordinarily drastic change and is very difficult to get over in the central nervous system. The neurons that are associated with that that arm don't go away. People have phantom pain for years after injury. Um, because yes. so it's it's to me the the nervous system, you know, um my friend uh, Mark Walsh, he has a, a it's, it's actually his friend Paul Linden has this quote, but the body isn't just a brain taxi. And that's why I think that, that there is a, we need mindfulness, right? You know, and I can't speak to that as much. I haven't gone as deeply in that practice, but as we talk about these things, that's a theme coming up for me is that, that idea of how do we, exist in the mind that we have but we also have to exist in the body that we have and a lot of times when i look at people who've spent a lot of time in the in mindfulness without embodiment um, Mm -hmm. they seem extremely disconnected yes yes and and there's there is it's like i see all these beautiful paths that that have wisdom to offer us but they all have traps within them right the trap that i see in movement among other things is an identification with it right mm-hmm. like you you are a mover therefore your value is how clean that one arm handstand is or how many one arm chins you can do and and you um and you look down on people who don't have these abilities and who don't devote their lives to it to the same degree that you do um mm-hmm. and and then you maybe you you see through that frame and it turns out that that's a bunch of very, very arbitrary things. And, and if it doesn't contribute to, uh, to being a better person in relationship to other people, uh, it's not so meaningful. Now I'm ranting a little bit, but. Um, no, no, it's, it's, it's great. Um, yeah, again, all of this is kind of in, in the middle of being processed, but if you look at, Mm, let's say like an autistic person um, whose brain is and bodies are functioning very differently. Are they less um, connected with themselves and with their environment? Uh, you know, not that they can't benefit from movement practice, but it's, I think there's, not just the body, but with the mind, there's a very strong identification that can also be a trap where we become too obsessed with being intellectual. Um, And things like feeling, intuition, uh, perceiving, they, they are, they're not necessarily tied to the intellect. Um, So that's where I kind of start to see, okay, the body, I still do see the body as a vessel. So it doesn't take away that it's extremely important and connected and wired to everything else, to our, our entire existence. But um, it's not, it's also not as significant as, um, as I used to think it was. 
perhaps you're someone who used to think it was too significant and our culture doesn't think it's significant enough. And there's a, there's a, there's a space in between. I think that most people are stuck treating their bodies as very insignificant. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, yeah, I wouldn't, I mean, I wouldn't disagree with you that in what you've described to me of your journey, it seemed like there was a time when your identity was too attached to that part of you. Yeah, that's, that's correct. But there, there is a, there's a, it seems to me there's a balance to be found, right? And, yes. And, and we are, and, and that's the question that, you know, coaches like ourselves trying to, trying to negotiate, right? How do we help people become more connected to their body, but not become identified with their practices to the point where it, where they're not looking for what it actually donates to their life. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, Ido said it very well. He said, you know, first you're a human, second you're a mover, third you're a specialist. Yeah. Um, but how many people who are doing movement as their primary thing are actually asking, how well is this donating to my function as a human? Right. And what is it to function as a human? You know, what does it mean to be oriented towards the good in some sense? That that to me is is where this process gets really interesting, and that's that's what I think. You know, I think that you I think you're doing this, and I think that you've you've really intuitively created a very strong and robust process. But I guess I'm challenging you because I think that you can, yeah. you can articulate it and speak it more powerfully. Yes, it's it's a very good exercise for me. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and and yeah, you're right. It does kind of tie in together and create this balance and it doesn't stop in the movement uh like class or session itself that would kind of be missing the boat it, because once you start to look into movement you if it truly becomes important to you you look at what you're eating and then where the food comes from and how that's connecting to the environment um and how your cleansing yourself like your body your home your space how you connect to the environment um like i, I read a simple book a tribe uh, recently and they spoke about yeah yeah it's like a nice easy read um and i like the part i think it was that book <laughs> uh where he spoke about um people that litter it's because they feel that that's not their home, that they, they've lost connection with the environment. Like if you're in your home, you're not gonna eat candy and throw the wrapper on the floor. But when I go to train in Queens Park, I am constantly picking up so many, uh, like so much stuff that kids and adults and, and adults with their pets just leave lying around and there's this disconnect. So I feel that um, as, you know, the movement practice is a really healthy entryway to start uh, understanding how you connect with the world around you, which includes the people and the environment and uh, all the things like, like with globalization, we just don't even really know where 
most stuff comes from and how it's made. We just take it for granted and we buy it. So it kind of opens up this the potential for this lens. Um, and that's, that's again, where uh, more connection is created and, and um, it brings potential for, for individuals to try and make it a bit of a better world uh, by having more awareness. I'm, I'm working, this connects to something, it feels like it connects to something that I'm writing right now. I'm writing this essay that's sort of trying to sum up how I think that movement practice contains this this fundamental ethic that or or philosophy that is really aligned with the philosophy that I've I've read in, in Jordan Peterson and similar thinkers. Um, and one of the key ideas there is in Peterson's book, he talks about the idea that meaning is essentially relevance for action. It tells us, it guides us to how we can act in the world. Acting, of course, is movement. It's motoric. Like in order to make things happen, we move. You know, even if it's just moving our mouth and our lips, right? We move. To see something, we move. Like we don't actually just perceive things um, passively. The eyes constantly move around in order to pick up the environment. So movement is so so in order to to just enter in order to to gain the meaning out of the world, we have to move. We have to move. And, and so movement is, is relevance for action. <laughs> and and I, I was thinking about that. And then there's this fundamental idea that the flow state is when you're getting clear feedback. There's, there's lots of other things about the flow state, but one of the, the key ideas is that action has to be tightly coupled to feedback. And there's another book that, that is a book that's influenced my thinking a lot. It's called super forecasting by Philip Tetlock, but basically he, he went to f try and figure out what allows people to have effective foresight. Uh, there's all these pundits and people who get paid to talk about the future, but they never, they don't have any actual skin in the game on the future. And so he created these pools to get people trying to predict the future. And what he found was that, it's the same thing. The thing that allows you to gain insight into how, into how the future is likely to play out is that you create a very clear prediction and then you get feedback on that as rap, as often as possible. So you, you say something that is definitive, right? Not, you know, the market will go down. You say the market will go down by X amount within X frame of time. And if you do that and then you regularly update your priors based on the information that's out there, you can gain insight. And that's fundamentally to me the same thing as the, as this flow process. And so I was thinking about these things together in this idea of connecting meaning through understanding the relevance of things. And what it occurred to me is that in the modern world, because we're safe all the time, right? Because we have abundance and because we are we are buffered by these enormous bureaucracies, the relevance of our action is is hidden from us. Right? It it's hard to tell what's the better action. Is it you know is your future really going to be that different if you go to one school than the other? Right? Is your you know uh, one job versus the other? It's like you're still going to have food on your table. It's not it's not directly relevant the way that life was and you know what Sebastian Younger describes. Um, and you, so you, uh, 
And then of course there's the bureaucracies. It's like, you know, when you buy a, a plastic water bottle, you don't know where that came from. You don't know the chemical, you don't know anything really about that. And you, and you probably won't see it as it's washed out to sea and ends up in a, in a giant, right. The, the, the relevance, the information that isn't tightly coupled to our actions. I think that one of the, what you're describing to me is that movement practice is a place where you can start recognizing what that feels like. And you can start building up relevancies that you can then look at and expand your scope so you can see, okay, because I have sensitivity in my body, I can mm-hmm. now understand the f- what the ac- actual feedback from it is about the foods that I put in myself. And then when I start seeing that the food, then I can start looking at the food as the network of where the food is produced. It's a way of tapping into actual relevance, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Was that <laughs> I kind of hijacked your, your podcast there for a second to just because the idea that you are articulating connected to something I've been trying to articulate. But it seems like this is at the heart of why these practices, perhaps they're so attractive to people right now. And also, like, why are, is someone like you and someone like me and someone like Simon and Mark Walsh and all these other people starting to, why are people from this community, from these communities, starting to ask these bigger questions? Right? And to me, it indicates there's something, there's some process that's generating insights that's taking us into those to those bigger scopes of thought. And that would be an indication there is something uniquely valuable right now in this cultural context for the movement practice, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I, I would agree. <laughs> okay. Um, is anything that yeah, been for you? Yeah, I'm not sure what it is, but there is that kind of natural journey, expanding journey that that happens, especially the longer you stay um, or get involved with with this world. Um, And then also with the information not getting too identified like uh over the weekend as or last weekend as chatting with different friends who are very environmentally and politically aware and really trying to make like do all their part to 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 make it a better place and and contribute um but then there starts to be this separation where if you are you don't have this awareness or this kind of care that um, you're in some way inferior. So uh, like, this is kind of a side note. It's not um, like from what we're talking about, but being cautious of not getting um, too identified with that. So living it fully and appreciating the value that it brings to us and that we can contribute back and share with others, but not um, feeding it to create separation between us and them, which is where all conflict comes from. Um, So let's say having dinner with friends that have no or according to my judgment, no environmental awareness or care, or even not caring what they're eating, um, not kind of making, elevating myself through my views and knowledge is something that I uh, guard against. Uh, 
because that's not going to contribute to more connection and expansion if if I get too caught up in the information. Yeah, it's uh, humility, right? That's the learning that ability <laughs> to to um, uh, there's a there's a kind of a I guess this is something I'm pondering right now because in order to act, we have to have some kind of value system, right? You asked earlier, right? Is an autistic person more or less connected? And uh, and and the answer could could be yes or no, right? It's like uh, Temple Grandin, who's autistic, um, is an expert in animal behavior. She has had unique insights into animal behavior that have changed the industry of um, meat, right? The 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 indi- so she basically was able to identify certain ways that we were causing far more anxiety and suffering to to meat animals than we needed to. And many people have adopted some of the things that she's picked up. And she feels that people who have autism actually have an insight into how animal minds work, that it's closer to that. So it could be the case that someone who has autism has a, has a deeper connection. Um, a lot of times autistic people you know, suffer because they have a hard time connecting to the ability to empathize effectively with other human beings. So you could say that they, and this is a place where they're, they're lacking some connection, but we all vary on these things and we can all get better at them. But in order to get better at them, we have to accept the frame that better exists, right? Mm-hmm. But once we accept the frame that better exists, we'll notice like, oh, well, I can jump farther than that guy, right? Mm-hmm. I, I can do this. And so then we have the, the, the trap of the ego. So how, how would you articulate that idea of how do, and when you're working with your students, how do you notice this, right? They have to have somewhere to go. But at the same time, as soon as you give them somewhere to go, they have a way to, to expand their ego. Does that, mm-hmm. does that, does that resonate? Does that ring true to you? Yeah, it, it does. Um, and there's that kind of interchangeable line between um you know working towards this future beautiful higher self and building confidence uh and i think you you've already said it it's just like pursue that and enjoy that but be aware of identifying like you said like okay i'm a mover and i have this and i am better and so and so uh just guarding against these thoughts if or when they come um, and within the group setting, uh, things like humor are very uh, helpful and therapeutic, right? Can just, uh, humor can be a very nice way to convey a real message in a playful way where it can be taken either way again. So, um, yeah, I think it's, and again, discussing it um, and having some internal practices accompanying the movement practices, even if it's still a movement practice, like basic breath work, um, just to have some space between like constant physical action and and uh, what the mind is experiencing. Yeah, that's um, one of the, I guess the one of the overarching themes of the podcast right now is creating an ecology of practices as uh, John Verbeek talks about, right? You're not going to get 
all the things you need from any of these things. Um, mm-hmm. you, know, you need uh, you need practices that, uh, that teach you how to attend to your attention, to teach you how to pay attention to the way that you're perceiving and, and interacting with the world, to teach you how to embody that connection and be connected, um, that teach you how to uh, engage in community and mm-hmm. engage in expanding your mind and becoming more articulate, more logical, more rational. Um, all those things need to be fed in some sense. Um, and, and, uh, and we're, we live in a very interesting time because we have access to all these different wisdom traditions we have access yeah. to all these different, uh, sports and movement practices. Uh, but we have a lack of guidance and the potential to easily generate egos that are out of control. So um, I need to run and take my children to jujitsu so they can engage in their, their movement practice. Is there any final words that you'd like to share with people? Um, no, it's just been such a pleasure and, um, and helpful for me as well. And uh, yeah, just thanks for all the support. <laughs> You're welcome. Thank you. Um, if people want to find you, you're uh, humanpatterns.net, correct? Online? Yeah, that's right. That's right. You're on Instagram as well. Is there anywhere else that people should be looking for you? Uh, Instagram, I have a Facebook page, Soishi Movement Sydney. Okay. That's it. Um, do you have any cool events or things people should know coming up? Not for the time being. Um, I did the last workshop in Barbados uh, last this earlier this month, and um, I'm just it's winter here, so I'm just focusing on my group right now. I've been away quite a lot, both teaching and attending workshops. So I do uh, post upcoming events on my website, but for the time being, I feel like just staying put and being with my little tribe. Beautiful. Okay, well, thank you very much and uh, look forward to speaking in the future. Yes, all the best. Thanks for listening to the Evolve Move Play podcast. If you really like the content we're putting out, make sure to leave us a five-star rating and a review. It helps tremendously in getting the word out about what we're doing. And of course, you really want to support us. You can support us on Patreon. This is a listener-funded podcast. And through your funding, it allows us to have the best equipment and to attract the best guests and build our audience. So we really appreciate it if you do those things. And we look forward to talking to you next time.